Okay, this is SenseBase Podcast. I'm Jacob Kashir, and today we're going to be talking about some topics of great concern to the world and of great interest to myself, namely the area of healing collective trauma, war, and climate crisis. And in exploring this, we have my good friend, Matthew Green, journalist, author, and somebody who's really exploring an interesting intersecting edge between these um, really important inquiries. So with no further ado, Matthew, welcome to the podcast, finally. Thank you for having me, Jacob. It's great to be here and great to know you. So I'm looking forward to seeing what will unfold over the next uh, 90 minutes. As am I. So perhaps beginning with your background a little bit and also the in some ways how we connected you have been the author of a book called aftershock fighting war surviving trauma and finding peace and you wrote that probably gosh was it seven or ten ten yeah, years yeah, ago it now? was published in 2015 2015 okay so you've kind of been on a journey since then and i'm going to send you a little bit back um and perhaps you can just share a little bit about what drew you on that journey and what was the substance of that experience for you as a as a war journalist and subsequently as an author, you know, interviewing soldiers who have experienced PTSD. Yeah, so I took up that project really not knowing why I was doing it, at least not at the deeper level. Um, I had a story at a more surface level about what was going on. Um, back in, I guess we're now in 2012, 2013, I was based as a correspondent in uh, Islamabad, Pakistan, and I was covering Afghanistan as well. Um, previously, I'd worked uh, for some years in Africa, I'd been embedded with US Marines during the invasion of Iraq. Um, so a lot of my professional life had been spent writing about conflict uh, or reporting from conflict zones. Um, I didn't really consider myself to be a war correspondent, which is a slightly loaded term. But yeah, I mean, for sure, I was spending a lot of time in, in countries where wars and fighting were taking place. Um, and it, the book wasn't my idea. The publisher approached me uh, and said she'd had this idea about a book uh, on post-traumatic stress after having heard, I think it was a BBC radio documentary about veterans from the Falklands War in 1982. And she noted that the centenary of World War I was fast approaching. Um, and she thought that would be a great moment to write a book addressing this topic. Um, and actually, she'd had another journalist lined up to do it who dropped out. So <laughs> she was looking for like substitutes. Um, and at first, I, I, I didn't really see what, where she was pointing or, or it didn't really feel like a project for me. I, I, I was very much invested in my identity as a foreign correspondent. Um, I didn't really see uh, I didn't I, I wasn't really looking to leave that world. Um, but then something happened, something drew me back and I decided to take on the project. Um, and that started a whole new journey, which you know, we can talk more about. Um, 
but it wasn't a journey that I consciously chose or really expected, certainly not in the way it began to unfold. So I hope that begins to answer your question. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I suppose just at a, the very first thing that's coming for me is like, what do you think? Like, were you sort of drawn to the intensity? Was there uh, um, to something about those environments of, of being embedded with, with armies and being, you know, being in these very, very different cultural contexts being in Pakistan like this is not it's not what most uh most people find themselves doing so what what got you into that or what do you think sort of um yeah what held you there what, what held you captive to to that inquiry well I think the answer that I would give to that has evolved has evolved particularly lately as I've become to as I've come to understand more about ancestral trauma and and how we carried stories from the past into our present um at before I come to that at a more like maybe almost prosaic level as a very even as a teenager I knew I wanted to go and report from war zones and I remember I think it would have been in 1990 when I was about 15 hearing John Simpson of the BBC reporting from Baghdad during the first Gulf War. And I was in the bathroom and listening to him on the radio describing how these American cruise missiles were targeting sites with incredible precision in Baghdad and almost turning left at the traffic lights. And I thought, wow, like you can be paid to do that. That sounds amazing. And I was very committed to that path. And I really very consciously worked to become a journalist. And then it wasn't that long, actually, looking back at it, that I was myself in 2003 on the start line with U.S. forces invading Iraq and riding with them all the way up to Baghdad uh, three weeks later. So and then returning to Iraq and then time in Afghanistan and so on and, and, and lots of time in Africa. Uh, so I did it. You know, I pursued that dream, if you like, and it became a reality. Um, but it doesn't really answer your question as to why I was drawn to that. And I now, my, my, and I wouldn't have been able to give this answer until quite recently. I believe it was an ancestral karmic pattern that was playing out to do with service in military, to do with uh, war and conflict, even empire, and that there was something that I was trying to resolve in my family line that caused me to place myself in those kinds of situations, which I would never have said or imagined at the time. And I would have probably denied as well. But as I've come to understand more about trauma, intergenerational uh, transmission of trauma, and the more mysterious, like almost esoteric mechanisms of trauma, I actually believe that that is the main reason that I was doing all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those kind of unconscious, deep-rooted drivers have been um, a big feature of our discussions. And I think they do take the conversation into a more mysterious place in a way, because we're, we're getting into that more sort of Jungian, unconscious, um, 
I guess, not, not easily quantified and boxed territory of what, uh, what drives our lives. Yeah, we're, we're, we're now starting to take these tentative steps out of the kind of consensus reality, almost Newtonian classical worldview and acknowledging that there may be more, like maybe a lot more. And maybe that's really more important than anything else that we might kind of tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves about what, why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and it was writing the book, coming back. I mean, there's a piece of context that's, I think, important as well. I, I'd, I'd had depression on and off over the years, like maybe every five or six years, I'd get something would happen, some in my mind, some disaster in my life, some work issue or relationship problem that would trigger me into a really collapsed, depressed state, which was very painful, obviously, for myself and people who cared about me. Um, inconvenient for my employers in some ways, although they were very good about it. But the reason that I, I took the, 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 this opportunity to write this book was partly because I was recovering from a very deep bout of depression over a relationship breakup. And I was starting to find like what I would call a healing path. I'd done Vipassana meditation, which had been very profound for me, a 10-day meditation retreat in India. And I was, I was really looking for a more kind of spiritual direction. And when, when I thought about this book, I thought, well, actually, I can use the vehicle of these soldiers and exploring the journey that these soldiers go on to understand more about how we transmute suffering into wisdom. You know, the, you know, the alchemical process of turning lead into gold, this great work. Like, how does that happen? That was really what I was interested in because I was interested in my own pain and suffering. I wanted to find a way out of that to kind of resolve this huge overhang of grief and regret and recrimination and all this huge shadows that were very active in me at that time. And so the, although I don't really write about that in the book, that was really what was driving me. And that was why the exploration, I think what well, continues to this day. So <laughs> it, the book was really the beginning of it, even though I obviously finished it, wrote it. Um, and I spent a couple of years writing about particularly veterans and the military sort of advocating um, on behalf of military mental health. I spoke in parliament on a, to a parliamentary committee. I did a lot of events and so on. I was very invested in that work. Um, but the military was only ever one layer of it. It, it, it was never the, the final destination. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited to, to move. So as we move closer to um, your present understanding and, and philosophy around this, but um, having met you quite late in the journey, I'm, I'm keen to sort of build out some of the, the missing pieces for me. So I'm interested um, if you might just sort of speak to what were some of the core um, reflections or arguments that you advanced in that book and, and also maybe the context of its reception, like how did you find the, the landscape of conversation around trauma, uh, around PTSD with the people at the BBC, with the people in parliament uh, and with the people in the army and so on? Like, what was that like? 
Well, to, to tackle that, that question first, I think certainly the environment has become much more receptive at, at one level to acknowledging the reality of psychological injury. And, you know, in some ways, the military is ahead of a lot of the corporate world, I think, because they've they've actually been forced to reckon with it in a way that a lot of other institutions that are full of trauma and are in fact trauma producing institutions themselves just can't look at that they absence entirely. Um, and, you know, it's not a new story in some ways, you know, it's been written about before. Um, I found, I think one of the things that was most interesting for me was that I was doing a lot of, I did many talks all around England on the, about you know, off the back of the book and almost invariably at the end of each talk an old like I don't want to say older like somebody of the next generation like either my parents generation or a bit younger would step forward and or put their hand up and say yes but you know my my dad my father never spoke about his time in world war ii or world war one you know um were they different then and there was this curiosity that always emerged about that generation. And I recognized that this sort of uh, collective trauma of war, we'd like to think about it, there's all these poor soldiers who've just come back from Afghanistan are you know, suffering from what they've seen or done. And there's a kind of trope around that. But actually it's really a trauma that affects everybody. Every family is affected. The whole society is affected by this massive unspoken unacknowledged war trauma that we compartmentalize in the way that we ritualize remembrance but which touches us and lives in us uh, in a way that we may not be aware of but consciously but which is incredibly powerful real and alive and that's why the book really was a pinprick in that when i think about it now you know if i was to embark on the same project again it would be very different i think how i approached it Mm -hmm. um and i've had my own personal experiences of connecting with how that that you know the, the 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 darkness of wars lived in me and that was again all completely outside of my awareness until i've been really embarking on deeper self-exploration and deeper trauma work mm. there was another part of your question which i can't remember now <laughs> Yes. Um, well, it was really the you know, the core argument of the book as well. Oh, yes, yes. Well, okay, this is an easier one in a way. The, the book really is saying that, and, and it's a point that's maybe more obvious now than it was at, at seven years ago or eight years ago when I was working on this, is that essentially what we offer most people who are struggling, i.e. some form of talk therapy, is not enough and yes of course I, I don't like to knock talk therapies arbitrarily because they often the first step we need them we need them as the beginning of the process but you know i used to think about it as almost like it's like you turn up in a giant mansion and talk therapy is like the reception area you know if you only do talk therapy you've never moved beyond the reception you haven't actually gone into the house right and the way the kind of political economy of mental health is set up in the UK, you know, the talk therapy, this cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, other talk therapies are very much the sanctioned orthodoxy 
and dominate a lot of the conversation and, and take up a lot of the space and resources. And, and as I say, I don't want to knock that because, you know, that can be the first, that is the reception area. So we do need a reception, <laughs> but we can't stay in the reception. And there becomes a problem when the, 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 the high priests and the practitioners of, you know, who are all hanging out in the reception suggest that it's, you know, a bad idea to push the door open and go further, which does also happen. So the book was really saying, look, we need to understand that trauma lives in the body. I, I, you know, I was reading Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. I interviewed him, and, and, but there are many others in that tradition and that lineage who understand that trauma is a cellular reality. It's almost, almost a sub, like, I'm not saying, I'm still working on this articulation, but it's almost to me like a substance. It's a thing, something that is in us. Mm. It, it's not just an idea. It's not just a, a thought pattern it's not something that we can remove by thinking differently we have to get embodied and actually clear out this trauma from our system and even what is our system our system has levels and layers that modern science and you know standard newtonian cartesian materialism doesn't recognize anywhere so to heal trauma is really to ask who we really are in a far more fundamental way and grapple with the complexity of the questions that that then triggers in turn. So although in the book I didn't get, I, I, I stopped, I didn't, I did, the, the last chapter of the book does really look at a kind of more spiritual dimension of trauma, but I really only just about got into the first room myself right out of reception there were still many more rooms in the mansion to explore more of which i've had a chance to explore since the book was published um and continue to do so but but yeah i i really wanted i suppose that if i was to boil it down it's to say what we're doing at the moment isn't enough but the good news is there's all these amazing frontiers that are incredibly exciting and people can actually transform trauma in incredible ways with the right support but often that support is more that is, is involves you know opening your mind to other realities mm. yeah i want to um to lend some of my maps to, to the picture you've just painted and in doing so i think it is it's really important that the um the, the sort of mapping of what's out there the mapping of what we're seeing with collective and the personal are, are really increasingly integrated i think the further we go along and and that seems to shine out in your story that it's in getting into your own personal roots rooting down into what was um pulling you towards war towards trauma maybe towards reenactment or re-encounter or awakening to um that you then begin to see the, the collective. And so it makes sense in a way that uh, in, a, in a cultural context where you had two generations of war, two massive unmitigated explosions of trauma on human nervous systems, souls, spirits, bodies, um, in ways that really did not exist let's say in the world if we think about the world and warfare before the first world war it's a very different kind of thing it's 
um, pretty awful and bloody. It's on a smaller scale and usually happens in a field somewhere. Um, but this scale of artillery explosion, you know, the book's called Aftershock. The very first word we had was shell shock. What we're trying to explain, what is this phenomenon that we've never seen before? What's happening to these people? Um, and of course, the scale uh, of the First World War is really unimaginable. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of soldiers from every country in the world, all on the battlefield. Pretty much nobody in society was untouched by this. Um, you need only look in every town in England, France, and Germany to see that each town lost 50, you know, 40, 80 of its men. And in a deeply wedded social fabric, that is a, a devastating event. And of course, we live, we live in the wake of this, we walk around it, but there is a, a journey one goes on to actually begin to, to see it. You know, I grew up around those monuments. I grew up seeing that stuff. I grew up with remembrance, but there's some sort of um, psychological intimacy with the direct experience that seems to me to be required to really understand um, what's the impact of being exposed to that terror extensively of just sensory overload. Um, what is the impact of seeing this violence? What's the impact of doing this violence? What's the impact of killing um, other people on the soul? And especially when there really wasn't a sense of the, especially in the First World War, there's not a sense of the evil that you have in the Second World War where there was that sort of ideological justification. It really felt like a sort of senseless, a senseless war. And so I'm, I'm throwing out a lot here and I don't exactly know where it's building towards. I think what I'm really doing is, is trying to sort of set what's the, what's the ocean floor? What's the sort of deeper sediment that we're on top of? Um, the way that I came to visualize the healing journey in my own journey was this image of the tree and of the branching self. And that in order to grow, we must both branch outwardly into the world, into our experience, but we have to root down. And those roots go beyond just our own lifetime. They go down into our parents, to our grandparents, to the collective soil. And eventually, when we get some intimacy with that, when we open that channel up, we, we hit on those collective layers. And I, the way I imagine it is really like looking at geological layering. You've got just a big sort of black layer, a big layer of trauma called the Second World War, and underneath that, another layer. And in between that, all of the families, all of the children, all of the widows uh, that carried through. So 
Yeah, is that something you want to to build in at this point in the, in the story? Well, I think I think maybe I can. I agree, and I think maybe I can by giving a little bit more of my personal story. I can maybe just almost speak to those more abstract themes in a in a very personal way. Like when I was growing up in the suburbs of London, there was always a story, a war story in the background about my great uncle, Lionel, which I was very dimly aware of, but which was hardly ever discussed or acknowledged and was very hazy in my mind. And it was only when I moved back after being overseas 14 years, I actually moved back to my parents' house where my granddad had also lived and my granddad, my dad's dad had served in the First World War as a very young man. And, but again, it was never discussed. It was never part of the you know, dinner table conversation. And at the same time, by seeming coincidence, the, there's, a, there's a part of the British Ministry of Defense, which is still looking for war graves and remains of was First World War soldiers, right? And cataloging them and so on. And they, my great uncle had been basically, he fought through North Africa, he fought through Italy, been captured, was a POW, had escaped from a POW camp. I'm not sure that it was a proper like great escape type scenario. I think there was a moment in the war where the government was collapsing and they basically walked out of the POW camps. So it may have been more like that. But what definitely happened is that he was hide, hidden in a farmhouse with a couple of other allied troops as the Nazis or the you know, Germans fascist forces were trying to find you know, these POWs. And he'd survived for months and then was eventually captured, I think betrayed somehow and effectively put up against a wall in, in a village in Italy and shot along with two other soldiers. Um, and the, 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 the officer who gave the orders was apparently the nephew of uh, Erwin Rommel, you know, the famous Desert Fox. And so there was this extraordinary story in my family that, you know, I only really grasped the details of it quite recently. And the war graves or the, the war, the war, this part of the Ministry of Defense that tracks all this invited us to go to a rededication of his grave in a, a big Commonwealth and war grave cemetery in Ancona in Italy. And I went along to represent my family. And all of this was happening like in parallel to me working on this book. But I just to me, it was like not really relevant because the book was about Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, I did write about the military psychology, psychiatry from World War One and World War Two, but I didn't, in my mind, all this was just coincidence. It didn't occur to me that there could be a connection, right? And, you know, as it was only after the book and after I began to sort of understand at a cognitive level more about transgenerational and intergenerational trauma that it began to dawn on me that not only was the reason I wrote the book to do with my own family's imprint of war, and particularly my granddad, who then obviously came back and was by all accounts a very remote figure, you know, <laughs> classically, you know, which would have obviously had an impact on my dad and then, you know, in, on me in some way, you know, you can almost see that mechanism, you know, more clearly. 
but there was this absence around my great uncle Lionel who'd been through this incredible tragic war story right um and I didn't touch on that at all in the book or anything you know just didn't seem relevant to what the story I was trying to tell but I it, it, it began to dawn on me more recently that actually this was what had drawn me to this topic this was why I kind of took this handbrake turn from my you know frankly pretty well-paid job as a foreign correspondent to come back and sit in my parents house for two years and work on this book on a shoestring you know there, there was some sacrifices you know in quotes you know involved in the project obviously I don't regret any of that but you know it, in some ways it didn't make that like it didn't make like all that much sense for me to do it on some other levels right mm-hmm. and some people didn't really understand why I was doing it and um so I believe that and and uh, I mean I could pause there there's more to this Maybe I should pause there and hand it back to you, but there's another level I could come to as well, where I really connected with this in a more visceral way. Well, I'm, you know, you'd shared with me about your great uncle before, Mm. but I hadn't really put together the piece, the quite obvious piece that, you know, that's your grandfather's brother. Uh, It was actually not, it was on my mother's side. So he wasn't directly related. Yeah. Okay. My mother's, my mother's mother's brother your grandmother's brother (laughs) (laughs) um and that 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 absence must have been a presence Mm. well well this way yeah and this is the 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 part of it that was very powerful because as you know i'm working with thomas hubel i'm doing who's you know people who don't know him is a leading facilitator of collective trauma work globally and I'm on a two-year training course with him which involves in-person retreats in Germany lots of online work it's it's quite an involved course and in the retreat the first retreat we went on in Germany in March we're doing all kinds of process work we're in this big field of 200 I feel I, I mean like an energy field of 200 people going deeper and deeper into their individual ancestral trauma and through one of the small processes I and I only hesitate to go into more detail because obviously we don't we can talk about our own experiences but we don't want to talk about other people's experiences but someone else in this kind of process had kind of connected with their grandfather having served in world war one and we were really talking about the male line and he was talking about how how awful really his childhood had been and how terrible his father had been to him and that was coming up and then i was talking about my own sort of male lineage and then out of almost like i don't want to say from nowhere because obviously we were in a deep process in a retreat on collective trauma but from me not being consciously aware that there was anything really I was talking I wasn't feeling upset or activated emotionally out of nowhere through this process I felt this profound grief over my uncle that had just that I'd never felt before in that way it was so intense it just kind of cracked me open and I was in pieces basically it it was so visceral the, the pain of that episode and 
not just that episode, but the evil of war, the darkness, the dark shadow that this, I was really feeling this sort of the energy of the collective shadow of war globally, but crystallized through this story and this very personal, intimate contact with my great uncle. Um, and how I felt I'd actually inherited that unprocessed grief and pain and all of the other emotions, anger. And imagine that moment, you know, the moment of being captured and the moment of being put up against the wall, right, by some young German soldiers. And, you know, buried in an unmarked grave until at some point, you know, you were found and moved and, you know, so but I, but but what was different was that I felt it. I felt it, and I was in, totally in the huge process emotionally. And I was given a lot of, I, I, I was, you know, very supportive group. You know, there's therapists, and I actually spoke to a, a therapist there. So here we are, eighty years mm. later, descendants of the warring parties. You know, helping each other to process this very visceral experience of of that packet of trauma material that had just been passed down and not been unpacked until it came to me, basically. Or it had had its influence, but it hadn't been acknowledged consciously. And that was a lesson for me in what ancestral trauma is. And then I looked back and thought, wow, my great uncle was on a tank or an armored vehicle going through North Africa, you know, in like the, you know, 1942 or whenever. I was on an armored vehicle going across the desert. Okay, it was in the Middle East, but it was also with the allied forces, you know. Uh, I was then moved to another war front in Afghanistan and he was moved to another war front in Italy. And I wasn't, I wasn't captured. I didn't, you know, I was captured by depression at times. Um, uh, although I think the origins of that were different, but I felt, wow, like, there's a lot of parallels here in this whole story that had never even vaguely occurred to me before. And so I thought, but of course, if I'm carrying that packet without knowing it, of course, I'm going to be acting it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and this is a very difficult thing for many people to receive because it sounds like it can sound like almost magical thinking or, you know, just coincidence. Right. What is it? You know, I, I, I just, feel it in my bones that it is not a coincidence and that this is what the essence of ancestral healing is all about and also what the possibility of it is because another element of this is that I recognize and this is an understanding I've reached like even more recently that so much of what we think is ours like our pro our stuff our issues our complexes our hang-ups and all of the things we struggle with all of us in different ways it's actually not ours. Like almost none of it is ours. It's all, almost all of it is ancestrally waiting to be resolved. And until you realize that, you're just often flailing around because you're looking for it in your personal history and you might not find it in your personal history. So if you're not looking for it in that, as you say, in those roots, if you're not sinking your roots down by like sending your consciousness down into your ancestral soil, in the way that many other cultures actually do know how to do, but we, we, we in the West, you know, have lost touch with. If you're not doing that, you're, you're going to struggle to really transform, I think. So, and that's an understanding that I've only reached quite recently, but which I feel very confident about.
Yeah, that's that's really well put. And I think we can also look at you know, Gabo Mate's work in particular points to the myriad health consequences from autoimmune diseases and all of these different symptoms that we see. And, and there are people I know, you know, in my own sort of broader family who I can see they're suffering from physical health. Um, sorry, just broke up a bit. Physical health conditions. And yet there is this, this deeper ancestral trauma that's there and that is the ultimate root of that. And the disconnect between those things is 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 where we are <laughs> in many cases um and what i could feel hearing your story is just the profound depth of difference between the story the narrative you know this happened to granddad this happened to great granddad this member of the family was orphaned whatever it was that pretty much all of us have those stories to that visceral felt anguish that comes from, from feeling those. Um, and it is, it, it is that, you know, you mentioned sort of indigenous native cultures. The, the thing that I've always heard is that there's a, there's a sort of maxim that, your actions have consequences for seven generations after you. Um, and in the context of collective trauma, this really changes the game because we're in sort of end of history, modernity. We, we think in a very recent way. We're not thinking of ourselves as constituted of parents, grandparents, grandparents, great grandparents and deeply impacted by that. Well, this is where we are in the grip of a whole catalogue of illusions around what is like really going on, really, and who we are. And this is now I'm venturing into like I'm I'm, I'm on like uncharted territory because I don't normally talk about this publicly, and I may be going to struggle to articulate what it is that I'm trying to convey. But the place where I'm arriving with this conversation is a place of, of acknowledging all of what you've said and also acknowledging that we're not even who we think we are, like, because so much of who we are is inherited, it predates us. But more than that, we're almost uh supposed to be it's supposed to be that way it, it, in other words this isn't wrong this is actually our opportunity because as soon as we start to acknowledge this imperative of engaging with our ancestral trauma our ancestral inheritance and the resources that we've also inherited we become less focused on the little story of me you know so so much of the suffering that like modern people go through is because we don't feel enough we don't mm -hmm. feel we've succeeded we've made it we haven't achieved in this society or we haven't become who we're supposed to be or you know there's some idea that was perhaps implanted into us about what we should become that we we haven't we haven't 
arrived at or even worse we do arrive at it <laughs> and then we're also equally unhappy because we realize that that idea wasn't was a culturally conditioned construct it wasn't necessarily an authentic expression of who we really are because who are we really we are like i'm gonna say a big phrase here but it's like we're fingerprints of god right we, we are the little you me constellation that's now interacting is actually just the kind of very filmic surface level layer of what we actually are really like the consciousness the depth that is behind us and outside of our daily awareness mm. and that's the realm of ancestors and all of the past whether it's integrated as history that we can build on and is what is you know underneath modern civilization but also all the shadows and all of these things are playing out archetypally in a on a cosmic scale and they manifest as little blossoming beings called humans that just come and go and come and go and come and go and wow like maybe that's actually who i am in which case suddenly my problem of like oh i'm not i didn't do this or i haven't become this or i don't have enough of this or suddenly that becomes very that, a lot less relevant because if my actual role is to moment by moment be tuning in to those resources from the past and and trying to bring forward the most benevolent expression of my lineage that's something else that's a different job than i need to have x amount of money or i need to have this kind of you know these career points or this kind of relationship it's like oh maybe the uniqueness of me is actually something really special and important and it can't be compared to anyone else so that whole kind of massive edifice of the suffering generating prison walls that so many of us and i've lived in for decades right always mm -hmm. feeling like i wasn't quite enough or envious or ashamed of not having achieved more you know real shame sometimes it's like no like that was all an, a layer of illusion that begins to collapse and disintegrate when you hit the real collective trauma work because you then feel it and you realize there's something more going on mm. and that that we're not who we think we are and and, yeah. and that's good because yes. the illusion about who we thought we were is why we were always kind of miserable all the time or not you know certainly not like awake present alive and ready to do what needs to be done regardless of whether the world is going to hell or not you know because we can't control that but we can control how we show up so so you know fantastic i'm not who i thought i was i'm really happy to hear that that's great that's like fantastic news <laughs> in in hearing you i'm i'm having so many visual uh it's like a very visually stimulating um insight for me and there's that kind of fractality of self i suppose that that comes out in those natural patterns those patterns that sort of scale from the smallest leaf to the amazon river mm. basin and, and so on and anybody who's you know engaged with my stuff knows that this is a very psychedelically informed space you know who, who i am and who i'm bringing to this is informed by psychedelics and i think there is something about that power of medicine 
and other modalities that get you into that depth of soma, into body, into, um, you know, letting the sort of narrow band of waking consciousness be dissolved into the larger conscious, the unconscious, the bigger we. That is something that I think opens us up to questions about who we are and also somehow is loosening up whatever is the constrained notion of self that holds that matrix of trauma in place that gets massaged it gets loosened and things can perhaps begin to surface or we can begin to sort of notice little patterns uh, symbols in our world that are sort of pointing us to a, a path that we are on and and in the course of that 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 insight that I think you and I are both circling that those roots those deep roots that are behind us that we can't see are shaping what is in front of us that they're, they're drawing in the counterpart um in order that we might realize more of of who we are um there's a great line in the new kendrick lamar album he says my life is a plot twisted from directions that i can't see mm. and it's that sense of like the roots behind you the things about your life that you didn't know the things in your childhood that you can't see uh mm. You know, they're shaping what partners you're going to get. They're shaping what's going to happen in your workplace. They're shaping the extent to which you connect with nature and the, you know, how you experience events in the outside world symbolically are all shaped by that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, and I, I absolutely would not be talking like this were it not for. The power of the medicine without question the various medicines the psychedelics i mean this is what has made me although a lot of the trauma work i've done i would say has been not necessarily with the assistance of the medicines the perspective that i've seen and that that much greater expansive oceanic consciousness which i've experienced in those journeys is the perspective I'm aiming to speak from in the sense that, as you say, we can, we're in our little matrix of trauma and we can find lots of different modalities for kind of popping the traumatic material up to the surface in a safe way to resolve and release it. And there's lots of ways to do that. And the appropriate use of psychedelics can be one of those. But more than that, it's what lies on the other side of that. Once we've kind of, once we've managed to clear enough of that personal stuff, then we kind of burst out, burst the surface and see this much more expanded reality and have an awareness of ourselves as expressions of something much bigger, unique, and with agency 
And what do we use that agency for? It has to be for healing. And part of that healing is then going back into the story. It's going back into the childhood. It's going back into the ancestry. It's in our family. It's in what's around us, what's in our environment. And then we can begin to come to a place of it's all supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be where we are. And we're supposed to be doing what we're doing. Which isn't anything, which is the which could sound like a recipe for complacency or for kind of resignation, but it's actually the opposite of that. It's actually an invitation to engage with a hundred percent folk uh, commitment and clarity to your present circumstances because they are your work, right? What's showing up for you in your life is your work because so much of the time we are actually telling ourselves a story that what's happening shouldn't be happening. And that's a form of resistance and denial that actually reduces the access or possibility of healing. So we have this kind of radical reimagining of what it is to be human in this way that suddenly makes everything that's happening show up in a totally different context to the kind of official consensus reality version. And, you know, I don't always live from that space, right? I get annoyed. I lose my temper. I, you know act out, fail, you know, get upset, have sleepless nights, you know, stuff still, life goes on, right? It's, I'm not talking about some kind of imaginary enlightened nirvana, but with enough practice, commitment, spiritual work, discipline, community, and all of the resources we can, we can assemble, we can be more connected with that field of awareness, that bigger vision on a more regular basis uh, than we might be otherwise which is why the spiritual path is real and it's great <laughs> it's, it's such good news that it, mm. it's you know that we can walk this path and fantastic and meet each other and you know have these conversations and then expand the circle bring more people in and that's how we can see it happening already it's already happening in many so many ways but that's how things move collectively as well which is why the tr collective trauma work for me is such an exciting frontier because it seems to open the possibility of real unexpected epic maybe changes that we obviously need if we're going to avoid like complete catastrophe so yeah that, you know that great <laughs> The last point really threads for me, and um, I do, I do, of course, resonate with much of what you've just said. In the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking about you on that BBC interview, and I'm thinking about that. Like, what would that BBC interviewer be, you know, saying in response to this? And I, I almost want to call forth, like, <laughs> what's the speak to the necessity of this and i know mm. there's many directions we can go with this like this is a whole very urgent exploration that we need to take very slowly mm. um but what is the necessity of collective trauma healing for men what's the necessity of collective trauma healing for the climate crisis mm. These are two branches I would love to explore. I don't know that we'll be able to do both of them, but <laughs> let's see let's see where where it's alive to go. Why, why don't we talk about men first? Because yeah. I I've actually thought and maybe written less about this. And I'd like to actually like 
rather than offer you my prepackaged conclusion. Mm. I, I like the idea that we're just going to strike off on this path and just see what comes back. Let's do it. I think I think one of the most powerful things I've read recently was a poem uh, that my wife sent me uh, as we were working on this men's group, obviously, which wonderfully you're also going to be part of. And I can't remember the poem or even who wrote it, but it was by a woman and it was basically saying all the women are in circles lamenting what a mess the men are in. And it's a disaster. And <laughs> like, please get it together. <laughs> and it that was basically the it was put much more eloquently in that but it was like you were like I, I i only was sent that poem because i was running a men's group like i don't think my wife would have sent me that just you know day to day but when i read that poem this kind of it was just such a kind of authentic it felt to me like a really authentic voice of the collective of where women are just so frustrated with men a lot of the time with them met with their met the men in there that there was some line in the poem about you know we want you we miss you in our families we miss you in our beds we miss you you know it's like you're absent you're not really there like what the mm. fuck is going on with you basically we're really grieving about this and when we ever we get together this is what we end up talking about and it's just awful please deal with it right <laughs> it was a fantastic poem <laughs> but i thought if i'd read that poem not just having launched a man men's group i'd feel pretty like challenged right and and this is the thing i think i think um the other funny thing maybe relevant to this is when you know when we've advertised this men's group online i haven't done a huge amount on but you know i put it on my facebook a few times the most enthusiastic reception is from women basically mm. i mean yes we have got 12 men who've signed up to do it which is fantastic but you know the public celebration of this work is coming from the women who are like great you know please if you could just get the men like to wake up that'll be fantastic thanks <laughs> and 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 what does that mean it means that how can i like i don't want to say this like i'm almost like i'm running down men or you know it, that's not the place i'm trying to come from but it's coming from maybe a recognition that culturally as men we are definitely conditioned to behave in certain ways around one another particularly and we don't always have the tools or the templates or the kind of uh instruction manual or the cultural instruction the cultural codes to allow us to connect with each other in ways that would make a bigger difference for one another you know in a very surface level you can get trapped at the kind of level of banter which is fine mm. there's a place for joking and humor and affectionate humor and loving humor and of course you know that's sometimes that's really funny and it's exactly what's needed but it's not enough right that can't be the that can't be the substitute for real connection right it's the it's the reception versus the mansion analogy right again so how do we how do we create spaces where men can come together and really share in a way that's going to help to loosen some of that trauma matrix how's it how, how to help us see th the bigger these bigger realities and just to find in you know just to find support inspiration you know understanding mm. and take off the mask and just be like yeah fuck i'm struggling right now and great you know let's 
you know, it's always what you know the motto of some men's work is, isn't it? You know, as as brothers, we can give each other what we didn't necessarily always get from our fathers. And that to me is like a that is well, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> well, this is yeah, this is the this is huge and this is core in many ways to what it what makes for a crisis of masculinity, what makes for men stuck in limiting patterns stuck in their in a in a child's in a teenagers and so on um is a relationship to the fathers is a big one yeah. um, and the consequence of that collective trauma as clearly as i can lay it out is that in my own family my father's father was in the second world war in burma his father was in the first world war mm. my mother's father's raised by his grandfather who was in the first world war mm. so on all sides of my paternal lineage a traumatized man mm. Mm. returning to cultures that have no real tools for integrating trauma it's not they didn't have really anything any of it to go on and i'm not sure that christianity um at this stage in the game was actually transformative enough to to do very much for these men and so where did that shadow go where did that darkness go where did all of that pain that couldn't be uh integrated and was actively suppressed by the culture don't talk about the war yeah. keep it to yourself even my you know grandmother would sort of get him to keep it to himself don't want to get that stuff out of the box keep it in the box in the back of the psyche that stuff necessarily comes through in ways we can't see um you know i think of it as this this there's this shadow that's come through and it's been pushed out of the public domain but it's carried on in the private domain. It's carried on in the domestic abuse. It's carried on in the, the absence of the fathers. Um, in all these ways, it's it lives on in the shadows. It lives on in the things we don't see. Uh, it shows up in, in all these areas. I I was working again with, uh, with Thomas Hubel in another, uh, retreat an online retreat just a few weeks ago and we were in a group process looking at and i can't even remember what the theme of it was but sometimes in this field this coherent field that we're going to establish with the men's group as well like things just come through to you you just connect with knowledge insights feelings that wouldn't normally be easily available it's like he would say thomas would say you've got to the cosmic address of the trauma it's like somewhere in space time you've connected like in a quantum way to that moment or that reality that would otherwise have been lost in time and i i one of the issues i've had to kind of work with is i can get very angry like i can suddenly get a, like a flash of anger at home not at work but at home i was like what is it why do i suddenly get this ah like and it's not you know i don't it's not like i i i, I act the anger out but i'll suddenly be like ah and i'll feel angry and I think, well, what is that? And I suddenly got this, I suddenly was back in my grandfather or with my grandfather. And I was like, ah, okay. You came back from World War One. 
you could not give anything to the people around you and you felt ashamed of that and to overcome that shame you withdrew and you defended your withdrawal by being angry and unapproachable and even as i'm saying that now i'm like wow like i can feel it feel the real grief of that like i can feel it like right it's like a shiver through my whole you can even hear maybe my voice is slightly <laughs> shifted like it's like whoa that was a hard one granddad like that was a tough one to carry for your entire life from 18 onwards right plus the depression post you know all of the other forms and you know what effect that had on my dad and then me right suddenly i was like yeah that's why i get so so angry because i if there's a little moment where i feel like i failed or i feel criticized like say by my wife it it gives me this disproportionate reaction this the the pet the, the 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 emotion that arises within me in response is so awful the shame and the disconnection is so intense that the anger kind of comes up to defend it to defend that you know, to defend myself from that it's like i can't look at that so i'll get angry whereas if i was actually to slow it down and be like actually i feel a bit ashamed that i haven't been there in the way that you needed in that moment that's a different place to come from and it's but you see as i said like if i'm still running my ancestral karma my programming or my that package that's been handed down yeah I'll just be angry and I won't really know why and I won't even want to look at it and I won't even really be aware of it. So I, I just offer that because I, I had a sort of like, like as this work, especially with Thomas Kubel has deepened, I've been, okay, I'm getting the theory of it, but wow, am I getting like insights into how it shows up and who was involved and when and how that came to be. And wow, it's great because now it's like, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I'll still have moments, but it's freeing because once you, it's like, like Thomas says, it's almost like once you've integrated, it's like you scan the barcode. It's like, blip, oh, I've got that now. I've, I've, it's almost like in my bar, like I've got checking out with my car basket of karma. I've got this. Like, oh yeah. Anger from my granddad's like war trauma blip process. I felt it, you know, even as we were talking, I could feel the, the charge of it. And that's great because that shows it's come up and it's no longer unconscious. So it's no longer running my system. Thank you. Great. You know, but imagine that on a society wide level, how much of that there is still living in men and the, and on the in, on the women's side in different ways. So I'm not, you know, certainly not taking it all onto men, but it runs through women in, in that maybe different dynamics. In, but, you know, equally can be equally damaging. So. So there it is, right? That's a kind of like 3D hologram representation of the concepts we've been exploring in my own body, real, alive. And and opening the possibility of healing and honoring my ancestors. Like I would, I really want to do a ceremony for these guys. Like when I went to parliament to talk about veterans' mental health, I could I was like really calling them in, like granddad and great uncle and one of the young soldiers i wrote about who actually killed himself i was like come on guys give me just be behind me when i'm talking and it it was good you know 
they're, they're there to help as well right so that's the other thing it's like not just the and you know this is something that um is an indigenous insight but you know from indigenous traditions that the resources of the ants not just that we're all kind of covered in the like cords corded up with trauma there's also ancestral resources that we can remember and yeah. bring forward not just for ourselves but for the culture right so that's why it's great to be where you are who you are doing what you're doing because it mm. may just be that that's what's needed for you to be in the place to do your part and this mysterious hypnosis of oh, i'm not good enough or i should be somewhere else is a big another trauma symptom oh i feel better already jake you should do this more often yeah <laughs> i could um yeah, I could feel that in my heart as you were talking about it. Like I, I could feel something um, mm. kind of released in me to hear that. Mm. And um, I think it runs both ways. I think it's it's both these unexplainable angers, these out these outbursting angers, and a couple generations on, it's often the opposite. And in, in my case, I think I've, I've experienced the opposite. I think probably my grandfather came back and had those episodes, you know, of brief outbursts mm. of, you know, domestic abuse, of shouting, of physical mm. violence, which was so commonplace in that generation and so widespread and so kept in, in, in the shadows. But as a consequence of that, I've grown up throughout my life not in touch with anger. Yeah. Not yeah. in touch with that fire, not in touch with that core aspect of what would make me a healthy, resilient man. Mm. And so then I go out and I get into intimate relationships and I go out in the world and I'm also sort of, there's a part of me that's suppressed or a missing piece or something that's not there. And I do think that there is a way in which speaking to the sort of, you know, be, be where you, being where you are, finding the wisdom, finding the pattern, finding where you are in this, this juncture of the fractal of the past, present, and future, yeah. that can be that you're in a toxic relational dynamic playing out. And that those things do, we're not, we're not ever in those things for no reason. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and this is it. And, and, and that's good because it opens the possibility of transformation. It, it, it takes us out of abstract thinking, regrets, projections, future into here and now alchemization of any, any situation. So that's being present embodied alive really alive and you know so many of us and myself included can just be kind of half asleep most of the time because we're so lost in our heads especially as men right so really like imagine if the reality was everything that's happening is serving your healing including the pain especially the pain especially the apparent dysfunction that's actually 
all serving your healing. Like maybe we live in a, like a universe that is that benevolent without realizing it. But because we resist and we make things wrong or we judge, we get caught up in pushing things away when actually mm. like one of the greatest, I mean, medicine experiences that I had recently was when I was just shown what is relaxation. It's not in the body. I mean, it expresses through the body, but there's just a still point, a zero point that you can inhabit, which is beyond the body that is real relaxation. It's like Thomas Hubel talks a lot about the, he, he reads from the Tao of the Ching, you know, and talks about, you know, the ever unfolding Tao, you know, it cannot be spoken that, you know, what, what can be spoken is not the Tao, you know, because it can't be, because we have to be in it, like as it's happening, as it's unfolding. And as soon as we try to grasp it, it's gone anyway, because it's a new moment. You know, it's that shift in consciousness that we're, we're able to make or have to make as a result of the, because the suffering becomes unbearable. That shift is what is the healing and what opens up the opportunity of choosing a different way that we don't then have to play out these unfinished patterns. Mm. Yeah. And so I hear that in you, I, I, you know, in your own process, you know, it's not easy. It doesn't happen instantly, but it feels to me like you're really walking that path. You're really embodying that transformation step by step. You're really acknowledging the enormity of the pain, seeing how it's projected outwards into the circumstances of your life, sometimes in quite dramatic fashion. And yet you're able to not get entirely lost in the drama because you know that there's something underneath all of this, which you have agency mm -hmm. over. And what, thank you for, for saying that. Um, what, was, what was coming for me was even if it's not, you know, metaphysically, our metaphysical truth that everything in the world is serving us, mm. even insofar as we just are oriented towards healing, if we're oriented towards learning, what, what am I learning in this? What, what, where is the teacher? Where is the, the wisdom yeah. that wants to come through? Then that, that is a, yeah, that's an orientation that then can shape the whole reality that we experience and, and we are the beings that for whom orientation and perception can change just about everything yeah um yeah i like the way you put that yeah it's an easier lift it's an easier lift than everything i mean it can sound very new age and trite almost so oh, it's all for your highest good like that that can sound like a bypass but and and maybe we'll talk about that whole question another time because I, 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 I just find it fascinating. But I like what you've said. In other words, your, your version of it, your sort of slightly lighter but more usable version, like what is the teaching in this, is a, is a, a, a reference shift that's maybe a, easier to make and more efficacious. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, think, uh, I mean, because I, otherwise we you can't, you know, it's like we can set ourselves impossible spiritual tasks otherwise, right? It's just too much. And it yeah. becomes <laughs> it becomes counterproductive if we're demanding too much of ourselves. Because that's another we've lost contact with the Tao again, right? If we're demanding too much of ourselves. 
by definition. We're pushing, we're pushing. What you spoke to of like, I mean, that, the wisdom of that belief, that understanding that everything is for your healing. Um, like we, in order to really hold that, we have to hold it at the moment where it's just horrifyingly tragic. Yeah. And the depth of that goes all the way down to sort of the core cultural foundations of, the, you know, for me, the cross and the Christian story as I've mm. sort of begun to unfold it for myself. You know, it's can you, could you hold that love? Could you hold that belief even in the moment of, of crucifixion? And that's how far down um, that could go. And so it is difficult. And certainly for me, over the course of the summer, it's been important to, to you know, at times let go of the trying to find you know hold on to that oh there's a wisdom in this there's a healing in this and just be in the just feeling oh, that's be it. In the rage be in integrate those parts that are just like no fuck this fuck that and so on um yeah. sorry we're not on the bbc so i can <laughs> the language um yeah so there's, a, there's an integration of those uh those different pieces which might in the course of bringing it out involve not acting wise and enlightened <laughs> acting yeah. like uh an angry enraged man or somebody capable of violence or conversely a child someone who's distraught someone who's um abandoned what have you um letting go of the adult image that we're holding and maintaining in society in these well-held context in our intimate relationships and community seems like a necessary part of this and for me certainly part of the paradox of the masculine leadership we need is both being able to cry cry in our brother's arms and fall apart and be the warrior and and with that warriorship certainly the the rage the anger and, and the fire like the what's the light mm. of those shadows mm. um these are really live questions and not inconsequential i think for the issues of the day the crisis of the day in some way is going to be addressed through people and those people are going to have to have qualities of of leadership as men and women and, and so yeah. what we're speaking to is about how we become those people in some sense yeah there's so much in what you just said that i loved and one thing in particular was this sense of connection like when we look at what's going on out there on a linear analysis, then, you know, it's very easy to conclude that the game's basically over, right? I mean, it's not, it's not encouraging, you know, when we look at it from a kind of, um, when we extrapolate forward on the trend lines that we're currently on, it's not encouraging at all, right? Um, what always comes to me in the deeper work is always it's about connecting to 
the people that where you see the good operating in them and it, that can show up in so many different ways you know it can show up in your personal circle your professional circle or on a on a higher plane but it's always about relationship right relationship and that it feels to me like there is something stirring collectively that will express itself through these connections you know i was in the i was working with this uh, collective trauma summit um and i interviewed brian dores who is a artistic director of theater of war which puts uses greek tragedy basically to hold space for communities to address their collective trauma effectively for military veterans to communities subject to racial injustice or oppression or you know refugees migrants healthcare workers in the pandemic you know it, all these different groups who've suffered some kind of collective trauma and he was talking about how zoom is like mass mass use of zoom for like mass healing or even one-on-one -on -one is almost as revolutionary for the human race as the creation of the Greek amphitheater two and a half thousand years ago in terms of what it can do to our consciousness our ability to be self-aware self-sensing self-observing you know Greek tragedy was the the vehicle for a huge moment in human development right and he's drawing an analogy with our ability now to come together laterally without authorities without governments without institutions but as citizens and human beings to connect in these you know, we're at the beginning of that i think you know that the, the potential of what this re could realize i think is astronomical and that very few people have yet fully explored but which will become apparent more and more in the coming years so so there's something stirring in response to this crisis and it's stirring through individuals it's stirring through these conversations and it, it you know that can always sound like oh you know wishful thinking i i just see sense very deeply that it's more than wishful thinking that it's a lived reality that is beginning to express so i'll just leave it there <laughs> well, or rest it rest it maybe rest it leave it. yeah well, I'll say that I, I I know that it's a lived reality, and I believe you're someone, and know you to be someone who's not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. And you know, in the in the context that we met, you were able to 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 be that for me and to provide support for me in a really um, pivotal way at a at a pivotal juncture, and it, it speaks to the impact that this work can have and also just the serendipity of of our meeting of our being brought together and what's given rise to this conversation is you know you went to journalism school with daniel simpson who was my <laughs> first ever podcast guest on sense space who i randomly met in london and you know i was inspired to write this article reflecting on my own grandfather and experience of collective trauma then now and and that came to you and we came together around this and who knows what will be the consequence of us giving live expression to this and channeling this out and for people to hear and really i think to 
go on a very coherent, um, sincere, depthful, and in ways appetizingly exciting, which I, I really love your unashamed <laughs> expression for the excitement of the, the mystery that's that's unfolding. And that's a key piece. It's not just about the tragedy of the work. Um, it's about the, the profound mystery on the other side of that. Um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased on, with the, the journey we've been on from the conventional into the sort of post-conventional. Uh, <laughs> I like that of, phrase, <laughs> post-conventional, <laughs> yeah. Put it, I'll put it on my LinkedIn, <laughs> post-conventional. <laughs> the post-conventional uh, space that's so deeply needed in this moment, and I believe yeah. is how we get out of the impossible position that we seem to be in. But with that, I uh, appreciate you and thank you so much for this dialogue, Matthew. And we haven't even touched on your know, work in climate journalism and how all of this deeply threads through uh, to the climate crisis, which is a topic I would love to explore in a, in a next dialogue. Yeah, it's been amazing for me to have this space to articulate and explore and discover this greater reality, this edge of the mystery, if you like, as you said, together. And be, that's been possible because of the way you've held this space and the way you show up and the work you do. And I really appreciate and honor that. And it's really exciting for me to have met you and connected at this level and really looking forward to what comes next in the men's group. And I'll, I'd love to come back and talk about climate change uh, another time as well so let's let's do it all again <laughs> let's do it thank you matthew and thank, thank you everyone for listening <laughs> to uh get in touch with this conversation and inspire some thoughts <laughs>